0: welcome to this week's european conversations podcast jointly produced by the european movement in scotland and the scottish center on european relations i'm Kirsty hughes and this week i'm in conversation with diedrich Sampson. diedrich is head of cabinet to the european commission vice president franz timmermans and was formerly leader of the dutch labor party diedrich many thanks for joining us today i wanted to start this discussion by asking if you could explain to listeners what your role entails. A head of cabinet, chief of staff is a very powerful role in the European Commission. But, but while you're trying to tackle all these big challenges of climate change, what's the core of the role?
1: Well, I wouldn't call it powerful, but uh, I have some influence um, since I'm the head of cabinet of the executive vice president, Timmermans, who is... Uh, dealing with the Green Deal. Um, So actually we are responsible for making the Green Deal Uh, and that's actually all there is and that's quite a lot. Uh, We made a plan in December uh, before COVID entered our world and turned it upside down and we have enrolled the whole uh, legislative framework, all the regulations that we need to change and the plans that need to be implemented etc. And obviously there's Hundreds of people working on that in the several dGs eh, dG clima and energy ministries, so to speak, uh, but we with our group of 20 are responsible for tying all those loose ends together into one beautiful green deal
0: it's It's a pretty big and an absolutely core cool job. Could you, could you perhaps outline what you see i mean the european green deal is is a is a very big and ambitious thing, but what would you highlight as its main ambitions?
1: Well, I think, uh, well, if you want to have it in one phrase, it's saving the planet. Um, And actually, it is different from normal environmental policies, uh, first of all, because of that ambition, uh, because normally politicians would, would tend to go for what you call the feasible, or the lowest common denominator, the practical, the pragmatic. Uh, And the Green Deal is not that. In the Green Deal, we consciously decided to go for what's needed to save the planet for future generations. And hence the climate neutrality ambition, but also the ambition to stop uh, the loss of biodiversity and to stop further pollution of our environment. Um, So it's one comprehensive plan, um to preserve our ecosystem Uh, and that's actually if you think of it a pretty logical approach because there is only one ecosystem and within that ecosystem everything is connected with everything else uh, like we do experience with corona now but uh, it therefore does not make a lot of sense to develop an energy policy and and somewhere else an agricultural policy and and somewhere completely different uh, a pollution policy or something on transport no it's one plan uh, one plan in which everything is connected with everything else. It's complicated, but it's actually the only way to go.
0: It's its bound to be complicated, isn't it, if, if everything's interconnected, as you say, but but uh, necessary, I think. Perhaps we can concentrate yeah. on some specific part, parts of it. Of course, one of the things that's attracting a lot of attention also in the wider debate at the moment is is the goals by 2030 as well as the goals to tackle emissions and get to net zero by by 2050. And the Commissioners put forward to the European Council and the Member States a proposal to reduce emissions now by 55% by 2030. Are, Are we going to see that agreed this year, do you think?
1: I think so, yes. Um, because what we did first was um, agreeing on on the dot on the horizon, which is climate neutrality in 2050. But since politically a dot that is pretty far away is not very operational, uh, you tend to delay all the action until you are almost too late to act. Uh, we decided also to define a trajectory towards that uh, climate neutrality and. Um, we discovered, which is doesn't re, doesn't require rocket science. We obviously discovered that the minus 40 goal that we have right now for 2030. So the official goal of the EU is a reduction of 40% CO2 emissions in 2030. That is in nowhere, no way on the right pathway. It, it, it would require nosediving further uh, down after 2030 which doesn't make sense economically, technically, and socially. So uh, we had to design a better pathway, Um, and we did it. Um, It's passing 230 at the minus 55 milestone, Uh, and we backed that up with an impact assessment. And I think uh, most of the countries are following that logic. Uh, All of the countries are following that logic. Some of them, or actually all of them, Have something on their wish list in order to comply with that logic, as usual in a negotiation in 27 member states.
0: So that that's going to be quite quite an important moment. For hopefully, before the end of the year, when the EU 27 do do agree that, obviously, as as you know, some want higher ambitions than that. We've got the European Parliament voted for. 60 percent and and it's not hard to find ngos who say it should be as much as 65 percent what do you say to them is that is that just politically a step too far or as you say do you think 55 percent is enough in this ambitious plan
1: well i welcome all those um all those even more ambitious uh, goals um Only if uh, I know, uh, only because I know uh, that there's on the other side of the spectrum, there's also stakeholders that would like a a less ambitious approach. So, for the sake of balance, uh, I I welcome all those people asking for more. Uh, But I do point them at the impact assessment that we made. I mean, as a European Commission, we cannot fly away in idealism, we have to be idealistic. Uh, but we have to make it work too. Um, And that's exactly the balance that we struck on a minus 55 goal.
0: And do do you think if if the EU agrees that and and manages to get there or better, that that's going to place the EU in in quite a global leadership role on
1: on that? Well, I did, uh, but I'm happy to... uh, (laughs) To see that that is actually uh, questionable. I mean, we thought we were far away of the pack, far ahead of everybody else, uh, lonely at the top. Um, well, that arrogance can go uh, in the bin, uh, and rightly so, by the way, because we now see c- countries catching up or e- economic blocks uh, catching up. Japan announced climate neutrality in 2050, Korea China in a maybe a bit more ambiguous way, but still they're there. I expect New Zealand and actually Australia too. Um, the, the only, it's just obviously uh, we are all waiting for that part of the world on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but uh, even there in the last four years, they have kept the trajectory that they set themselves out uh, uh, in the time that they still belonged in the Paris Agreement. Um, despite all the rhetorics of Trump about coal mining and opening coal-fired power stations and burning gas and whatever, <laughs> the uh, developments on the other side of the ocean are also going in the right direction uh, in terms of innovation, renewable technology, etc. And the closure of coal-fired power stations never gone quicker than in the last four years. So, um, while we sometimes um, well, while we sometimes like to say as a European Union that we are so much better than the rest of the world, uh, we're not. And that's uh, good, because if we would be the only ones trying to uh, achieve the goal of preserving our ecosystems, uh, that, that our ecosystem, that would not work.
0: And as, as, as you referred to, we're actually talking to each other on, on the 4th of November, the day after the US election, and we don't know the outcome Yet, but but we do know that, ironically, this is also the day that the US finally leaves the Paris Agreement. President Trump had said the US would do that over three years ago, but it's taken until now for that that to be the official day. Do you you hope that somehow the politics of the US will allow it to, to rejoin that agreement?
1: Well, I'm currently looking at Pennsylvania at the moment because, as you rightly say, this is the day after the election. But it feels like in the midst of it, uh, they're still counting votes and they will do so for the next 24 to 48 to maybe 72 hours. And obviously, I hope that at the end of all that counting, uh, we have an administration that is rejoining Paris, the Paris Agreement. Um, And then there's still a lot of work to do, but that will be the the, the first step.
0: And, and you mentioned earlier as well, the the huge challenge we're all now facing because of the COVID-19 crisis. It's a global crisis and, and the EU has, has worked hard to try and coordinate its response, albeit that most of the health powers are at member state level. And, and the EU has, has also taken quite extraordinary steps in many ways this summer to set up a large recovery fund and to say that a big part of that should focus on climate change do you think it's is it really possible that despite all all the huge negatives of the COVID crisis that that this could somehow reinforce the green transformation we need
1: yeah (laughs) and uh, that comes as a surprise to many and Maybe a bit, including myself, because I'm old enough to remember uh, that this happened before, when a presidential hopeful at that time, um, Al Gore, walked into Europe with a, with a movie uh, called An Inconvenient Truth, and I know he mesmerized uh, the audience, uh, including politicians, um, op-eds from Tony Blair and and other government leaders in the financial times urging themselves and each other to step up to the plate and and develop more climate action, etc. And that was all done, or at least that was all starting to be happening. And then Lehman Brothers fell and we haven't heard of an inconvenient truth ever since. So obviously it is a habit of humanity to be distracted by an urgency. Uh, and and forget about the horizon that we were walking towards. Uh, So when Corona entered our lives, and that's basically the financial crisis on steroids, uh, I was a little, um, I despaired a little, because I thought, oh my God, here we go again. But that didn't happen. The opposite happened. Uh, What we managed to do was convince the public, or the public convinced us, in politics that's always a two-way street, But we we convinced each other that the best way to recover from this crisis is to build back green Uh, and that has a huge um, consensus. Um, There's a a big support for green recovery plans, I think partly due to the fact that the urgency has sunken in so much more than 10 years ago when Al Gore uh, gave it a try and secondly because innovation has enabled us to to really invest in that renewable technology on a large scale and deploy it on a large scale and and get loads of millions of people in a job uh, using or implementing that technology. I mean 12 years ago offshore wind energy was still incredibly expensive and and sort of on a pilot phase and now it's big business and the same is for solar and imagine 12 years ago, your first electrical vehicle. That was quite a deplorable uh, car. And now it's hip-hot and happening all over Europe. So technology enabled us also to, to make that move. It's not because we are better people than our predecessors in politics 12 years ago. I was in politics 12 years ago. Uh, so uh, it, it's the circumstances that are so completely different. And actually, despite all the corona... Uh, which is a disaster, no doubt about it, I'm still optimistic that we will come out of this stronger and greener.
0: That's very encouraging as a point of view. The EU has said that at least 30% of recovery funds should should be climate-oriented in some way, haven't they? And yet at the same time, uh, other observers and politicians have, have expressed worries about fossil fuels and, and the, the the recovery funding might actually encourage them, especially natural gas, rather than discouraging them. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's that's true. And that's, uh, well, the worry is justified. Uh, but there is a more fundamental rule implemented in the regulation around the recovery and resilience facility. We work with regulations and strange names uh, in the European Commission. Yeah. Get used to it. Uh, but the regulation around that great facility, uh, which is actually a big pot of money um, that has indeed uh, an obligation to spend thirty seven percent of uh, of everything on climate related investments, but also to do no harm and that 's also for the other sixty three percent so you cannot get away with it as a country by spending some thirty seven percent on renewable technology and spending the the other 63 on uh, oil uh, refineries or uh, gas-fired power stations that will not work because the overarching principle is thou shall not do harm and in this case it's to the environment and by the way not to each other either but we have other regulations for that and in this case so I'm, i'm optimistic that that we we really we can create a recovery that is green and is not bringing us back to the old economy that we were trying to leave anyway so now we are kicked out of it by corona and, and the urge to go back might be there sometimes and at some moments and with some people actually by everybody sometimes and we all have that urge to go back with our lives where we left it before that bloody virus came in but we have to resist that urge and, and take the opportunity to move on to a better future. And I think we can. It's, it's not going to be easy because looking at the first draft plans that are now coming in from, from ambitious countries that are quick with my, making their assessments and ideas, there's quite, a, there's quite some old stuff still in there. Yeah, But you can count on the Commission to uh, be strict.
0: That's, that, sounds, that sounds encouraging, um, a bit of toughness uh, to make, keep us moving forward enough. Um, there's also a lot of emphasis put on what's called a just transition, isn't there? What, what does that mean to you to have a just transition?
1: Yeah, it's one of the other ways that uh, this environmental policy stands out from normal environmental policies is that it's not an environmental policy. It's a social, socio-economical policy too. It's our growth strategy for the future, well, uh, amplified by Corona. And it is a, a philosophy to create a more just society. And that's for a good reason. We've seen in the past uh, in the, that every transition of society, uh, most of the times an, an industrial revolution, has a sort of a Darwinistic nature. It always ends up with more money and more power in the hands of fewer people uh, the invention of the steam engine was maybe the best or the worst example of that or the second industrial revolution was mass production led to the, the, the rise of big companies um, and what we did especially in Europe as also in the rest of the world we always tried to, to repair that social damage afterwards uh, for good and for, well whatever we could do uh, fix it a little we can't afford that anymore uh, society we cannot uh, let people down while making the transition and picking them up later. Uh, that's not going to work. society is too mature for that. Um, and the transformation is too big. So this time we have to include the justness of the transition in the heart of the policy itself, in the heart of the plans. And as we always say now, this will be a just transition, or there just won't be any transition. It will be stopped. Um, and, uh, and, and again, uh, for justified reasons, if we do not manage to leave no one behind. Um, so hence the Just Transition Fund, and the, all the mechanisms and all the ideas, but also as a concrete example, the objective to start the whole transition with the renovation wave insulating our homes and creating renewable energy and smart grids in our homes. Because what you do with that is first of all, yes, you create a lot of jobs. Uh, Insulating homes requires work and jobs. Uh, You create sustainability because you have better insulated houses with lower energy use, but you also create a lower energy bill for the people living there. And um, added to that, when we, we committed ourselves to starting this, with affordable housing. So that's where the people live that could use a lower energy bill, especially in the corona times. So this is one of the examples where you can have justness and environmental progress go hand in hand.
0: As you say, you've got got to bring society with you, or society's got to bring its politicians with it, maybe. Um, You've got to do that around the whole world, and of course, because of the COVID crisis, as you know, the big global climate summit, the COP26, that should have been happening this autumn in in Glasgow, is is now postponed to to exactly a, a year's time. Do you think it will now happen in 2021? I assume you must have been discussing the sort of COVID logistics of this. Hopefully, we'll be much further forward in tackling the COVID crisis in a year, but but it must be very difficult, um, an added difficulty to to the really challenging political dynamics.
1: Uh, yes, it's true. But uh, it will happen in 2021. Why not?
0: Because, because it may be difficult to bring a very large number of people to Glasgow in close proximity.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you... I, okay, I see what you mean, but I, I may... Well, if, if that's still the case, we have ourselves quite a problem uh, first of all but secondly we will then uh, defer to to digital ways to to do this in a way the extension by one year of COP26 uh, because formally that's what happens is a sort of a blessing in disguise Uh, because imagine we if COP26 would have happened on the planned dates in Glasgow the European Union would have just not been ready with its new uh, target for 2030. China would not have announced its new ambition for climate neutrality. Neither would Japan. And we would still be waiting on a new president in the U.S. Now, fast forward to the end of next year. That is all there. Well, I'm now looking at Nevada, and I hope actually that that president will be the right one. But let's wait a few days and we have ourselves an opportunity. So... Uh, yes, it's difficult in terms to organize it. It's also difficult to keep the momentum, but the UK presidency is is doing pretty well in trying to to keep the momentum going by organizing all kinds of, let's say, intermediate events yeah, to, to keep the attention, um, or to keep the eyes on the ball, so to speak. So I think that, that's, I'm not too worried about it yeah and in the end okay if we cannot come to glasgow physically uh, by then we have another year of practice with those damn computers <laughs> we
0: we may all need that sadly um how how do you see or, or the eu presumably is already working with with the uk which which in partnership with italy is is the president of of the cop 26 next year but it's not an eu member state anymore so so that's kind of lessened the intensity of of communication across the board. But what what about in the case of the COP on climate? Is is it all working well?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a sad story for many reasons, but this is not the biggest problem we have with Brexit. Um, We've organised COP in all kinds of third countries, not being part of the EU. Uh, The UK is, is apart from not being very ambitious on European cooperation, it's pretty ambitious on climate, and I hope they stay, they stay that way. Um, so, I'm yes, obviously, I, I would have loved, for, for a million reasons, uh, to, to organize COP26 in an EU member state, being the UK. Uh, but, well, history uh, did not allow that. So we, uh, we will manage uh, to organize uh, COP26 in the UK, being a third country which
0: is fine. And as you know it's a, it's in Glasgow, um, Scottish Government is very pleased that it, it's taking place in, in Glasgow and, and Scottish Government has had its own rather ambitious um, policies on climate change in many ways. Obviously the UK is the official host but presumably you will have some relations with the Scottish Government and with Glasgow Council and, and so on, as, as, as the planning moves forward.
1: Oh yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, we already had uh, because the organising committee or the organising town always has a sort of an extra. It can put its own flavour to the uh, to the cop uh, to the conferences. Uh, and I hope you will settle the dispute on on whether and how many Scottish flags are are waving around. Uh, but I'm happy to walk through all of them. And um, we we will have a, a very successful COP in terms of the organisation. I mean, I can't predict the outcome in terms of the political weight, although I'm also optimistic. But I'm certain that it will be uh, a, a, the organisation will be close to perfect.
0: And what what are the EU's top aims for next year? Is it still to to pin those down, or is it is it clear already?
1: Well, uh, to the final details, you might have to wait until the, we uh, decide on our final position, uh, and that will be done in the in the course of the year, obviously. But in broad terms, it's 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 clear that climate neutrality goal, the minus 55, uh, for Europe, then, but for other continents, economic blocks, and countries, it will be translated into their own trajectory. But so updating all our NDCs is uh, is one of the priorities, uh, financing. Um, the world also I mean maybe we are not the first ones to to design a just transition actually the UNFCCC in its in its own framework uh, designed or tried to design a just transition and now we have to implement it um, and hence the the climate financing goal of hundred billion per year uh, quite, a, quite a, a bunch of money and we we have to uh, to come up with that um, also for uh, the developing nations, etc. So I think that's the two main goals. And, and you could add a, a, a truckload of other ambitions, uh, climate adaptation, uh, for instance. Um, so it's going to be a busy cop. But those two goals will be front and center, I think. So updating our own NDCs or all our NDCs and the uh, national derived contributions. Uh, so what are you going to do about it? Um, and mustering the finance for it.
0: Well, you're right. It's it's going to be a very busy year. I, I think it's. I think we can agree. It's vital to get to at least those targets. As we said earlier, there's going to be plenty of argument and, and lobbying that those targets need to be higher, or that the the funding, um, the adaptation and mitigation funding for developing countries, especially, needs to be needs to be more. But it, it's, it's great to see that we are at least on track for next year, whatever happens with, with COVID. And, and hopefully it, it's going to be good news or better news, at least as, as we head into 2021. Just just a last question um, as we bring this podcast to an end. Uh, are, are you at heart a, an optimist on this? You, you work with all the, the devil in the detail of the politics and the different views from the leaders and the laggards. But are you an optimist?
1: Yeah, I'm an optimist uh, uh, on a daily basis, basically. Uh, so I always get out of bed a bit more optimistic than I uh, go to sleep uh, because <laughs> that's the reality of the day. But then uh, you load yourself up to a new level of optimism. And to be honest, within that general line, I've never been more optimistic than now uh, in terms of our momentum to to make this happen. And, well, and we bloody should, I, I could add, because... This is also our last chance. So um, I sometimes tell also the people, you know, we, we have to do this and otherwise don't bother uh, because then it might be too late. Um, so not only optimism, but also a huge sense of urgency. And I think the combination of the two, if enough people feel, feel that, we will make this happen.
0: There we must leave it. Diedrich Samson, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. That ends this week's European Conversations podcast. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and I was in conversation with Diedrich Sampson.